Hi, my name is Martha. <laughs> Throughout this series, we will read each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we read Psalm 91. Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, For the Lord will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence and will cover you with his wings. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation. Grant us salvation, Lord. In trouble be our refuge. For God will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. Because they cleave to me in love, I will deliver them. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. The word of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come to you as people who've been gathered in the name of Jesus. We've come because we so desperately need to hear you speak, that your word is a lamp onto our feet. And so to know where we are going and which way we should walk and live, we need you to speak. So continue speaking as you always do. But for us, would you open our ears to hear? Would you open our minds to understand? Would you open our hearts to receive all it is that you have to say? And may it return to you as an offering of rightness and justice in our lives and the world around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Before I joined the staff here, I worked at a church uh, in Tulsa, and before that, I had the opportunity for five years to teach biblical Hebrew at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Now, for a moment, that sounds really cool, but if you give it a second thought, and you already are, you're starting to realize just how nerdy that is. <laughs> then of all the things that you can do with your life, there are few things as nerdy as teaching in a seminary, and few things nerdier in that world than teaching biblical Hebrew. 
Uh, in fact, unless geek is the new chic, I'm in serious trouble uh, when it comes to cool factors. Uh, here's the interesting thing that happens whenever somebody finds out that I spent time teaching Hebrew. It's a pretty predictable response. About 90% of the time, here's what happens. First of all, there's this like, oh, that's cool. And then secondly, it's followed by one of two questions. The first question is, can you tell me what l'chaim means? Because they'd been to some Jewish party where somebody yelled l'chaim, and they yelled it along with them. They're like, I have no clue what I'm saying, and I hope it's not a cuss word. Uh, l'chaim means for life, so you don't have to ask me after the service. The second question is like, oh, can you help me with my tattoo? I cannot tell you the number of times that I've been asked that question. I would go to my office and I would randomly have phone calls from all over the country, people asking me for tattoo help. They just wanted to stay off of www.badhebrewtattoos.com. Like they were so desperately, they were willing to call up anybody for help in that. I, I got asked so many times, I thought about starting a consulting firm. Just simply, it's like bring in some extra income. But then as soon as those questions are answered, the next thing that happens is pretty predictable. Silence. And then a walking away. (laughs) It's just, I don't really know what else to talk about with this particular person. The only people that actually seemed less interested in having a continuing conversation about biblical Hebrew were actually my students. They simply thought to themselves, why did I choose a seminary that mandates that I take this class? Of all the places that I go, I could have gone elsewhere. Instead, I'm stuck here. And the truth is, we all know that language learning is hard. How many of us at some point in either high school or university uh, studied another language for a a period of time? Okay, hands really high. Okay, now uh, put your hands, keep your hands up if you're fluent in that language. Did you all see just what happened? (laughs) There was a a massive sort of down. There's something about language learning that's incredibly hard. We all have these painful memories of drowning in flashcards, just like carrying them with us to the grocery store, pulling them out, and noun inflections or noun endings and verb inflections and grammar rules and trying. And there's a certain part part of language learning that requires memorization. But we know to truly learn a language, we have to really immerse ourselves in it. At some point, we have to move away from the flashcards and actually start having conversations. We have to read and sing and speak and actually use what it is that we're learning. And the truth is, for many of us, if not most of us, faith is actually a second language. We have to learn the language of faith. We have to learn what it means to talk to God, to hear from God, to have conversations with him. And there's perhaps no other book in the entire canon of Scripture that helps us with this more than the Psalms. That the Psalms teach us the language of faith. They help us to identify or uncover what's going on in our hearts and give voice to our inner life with God. They help us to articulate our prayers and our desires, our hopes and our frustrations. They give voice to the human experience with God in the world. And at the same time that they hold our words to God, they hold God's words back to us. They help us to hear and discern and to understand what it is that God is saying to his people. 
The Psalms teach us that the language of faith is a relationship, is a conversation, and it contains both of these things. And so throughout this series, we've been taking a look at the Psalms and asking God to continue to teach us this way. And we're joining really thousands of people, thousands and thousands and thousands, who across the centuries, across the millennia, have done this. God's people have throughout our history together memorized the Psalms and prayed the Psalms and sung the Psalms as a way of articulating our life with God. Now, through, as we began this series, we talked about that the Psalm, the book of Psalms, is actually subdivided into five books. Most likely, the reason that the Psalms were gathered into five books is to correspond with the five books of Moses. That we have these initial books of Moses at the beginning, so we have these five books of Psalms. But there's another question to ask, which is we know that the Psalms were written in various times in various places by various people for different reasons. But how did they all end up in the order that they're in in the Psalter? How did they all end up in particular books within it. And I think the best theory about how the Psalms were organized and arranged is that they were organized and arranged as a cantata about David and his kingdom. They were arranged about David and the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. What happens to David's line? What happens to David's offspring? What happens to the southern kingdom? So book one, the first 40 or so Psalms, it really is about David's rise and David's conflict with Saul and all of the things that are happening as David is a young man coming in. So the book two really can be sort of understood or, th or thought about as psalms related to David's reign. This is where we famously find Psalm 51, David's failure with Bathsheba in the middle of this book. Book three really then is about life after David, what happens with Solomon and Rehoboam and all of these kings and seeing how the kingdom is divided in half and eventually how Judah falls to the Babylonians. Book four can be understood as psalms that are brought together to give voice to Judah's experience in exile in Babylon, as ways of understanding and articulating their life with God as they find themselves in this place they never wanted to be. And then the fifth and final book contains psalms that can be understood as psalms related to Judah's return. This is where you find the psalms of ascent as they're going back up to the temple to sing praises to God as they're being restored into their land. And when we think about the Psalms this way, it helps us to maybe understand and see things in each Psalm that maybe we would have missed before and thinking about Psalms together. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 91, which finds itself right here in Judah's exile, a Psalm related in some way to that time period, at least set in that time period within the Psalter. But what we're going to do before we look at 91 is we're going to look a little bit about eight, at 89 and 90. And the reason that we're going to do this is because we have a challenge already as you know, 21st century Western American Bible readers, that we tend to read the Bible in small parts, right? We don't tend to read it in big chunks or in books as in whole. And this is particularly true, I think, for the Psalms. That if we think about most of our Bible reading plans, we read a Psalm a day. We never read more than one Psalm. We rarely, if ever, read Psalms back to back to back. And yet they were put together in a particular order, in a particular way to help give shape 
to what's happening. So we're going to take a little look at this, dive into some nerdy things for a little bit. You can be geek chic with me uh, and see what it is that we might uh, hear God saying to us. So book three, oh, it's never good to drop the iPad. Everybody good? The iPad's good. All right, so book three ends badly. Book three ends with the fall of Jerusalem, with the sort of stopping of David's line and the exile of God's people. We find these kinds of verses in Psalm 89, this last book in book three. It says this, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? How long, God? Psalm 89, verse 49, a couple of verses later, Lord, where is your steadfast love? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Glenn's talked numerous times about God's chesed, his covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, his loyalty. It's that word. God, where is your chesed of old, which by your faithfulness you soared to David? Where is the thing that you promised to us, you can hear the anguish of God's people that they find themselves in a place where they have no land and no king and no temple. The people of God have been dislocated. Everything that they hold dear has been destroyed. Their entire way of life and being in the world has been disrupted. Their self-understanding and their understanding of who they are in relationship to God has been completely disordered. They feel abandoned, and it seems like God is AWOL. That's the depth of where book three ends. It ends with this massive, tragic cliffhanger. For Hunger Game fans, this is like the end of book two. Catching fire and the book ends, District 12 is gone. It just ends, you're like, what? Or if you're not into Hunger Games and maybe you're a Harry Potter fan, Harry Potter, book number six, The Half-Blood Prince, ends with Hogwarts in, in turmoil, and Dumbledore is dead, and Snape is a Death Eater, maybe, and Harry and the Horcruxes, and, and, and if I ruined that for you, I'm sorry, it's been 10 years. Like, <laughs> like your, your, your grace period's over at this, at this point. And it ends, it's like, no, it's this crushing sort of cliffhanger. If you're not into that, maybe you're more of a movie person. This is Empire Strikes Back, right? The movie ends and the rebellion just looks a little fleeting. And Han is frozen. <laughs> and Luke's got like a mechanical hand. <laughs> it doesn't look good. And, you know, he's got to go face his dad again. At some point, you're left at this crushing. Or if you're more of a TV person, this is the end of every season of Lost and every episode of 24. <laughs> like, no! But and the reality is, but we also know what this is like in our own lives, right? We know what it's like to feel like our entire life has been upended. Where everything that we thought was predictable or normal or guaranteed is now gone. We know what it's like to have, a, have to leave a place that we love, a place that we've called home. 
We know what it's like to lose someone or something that we cherish. We know what it's like to go through grief and loss and crisis, to be utterly confused then about who we are and what we believe and what we're supposed to do next. We know what it feels like to be entirely unsure of how we reconcile our new sort of life and existence reality with our relationship with God. What do we do now, God? We know what it's like to cry out, how long? And God, where is your faithfulness? And perhaps more than anything else, the book of Psalms teaches us that it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to ask these questions. But the beautiful part about the book of Psalms, too, is it also doesn't leave us with those questions. It helps us to navigate those and to direct them to the God of the universe, to bring those questions back into our relationship with him. So this is how book three ends. It ends in tragedy. Then book four opens in the most peculiar way. Book four opens, Psalm 90, with this superscription. You know the part of the Psalms that you always skip? Um, It starts with this superscription. It says this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses? What's Moses doing in the Psalms? Like Charlton Heston just like appears out of nowhere. We're like, what is going on here? Why is this happening? I'm confused. And even if I think this is about Judah in exile, why Moses? In fact, Moses appears eight times in the Psalms. Seven of those are in book four. Seven of those are in this time. Why? I think it's the psalmist's way of saying to God's people, we've been here before, right? Here they find themselves, no land, no king, no temple in a foreign land. And it's a way of saying, hey, remember, you've been here before. Remember Moses? Remember Egypt? Remember what happened long ago? Remember you've been here before. You had a relationship with God before there was land and king and temple. Remember that your foundation of your faith is not on these things, but it's actually on the faithfulness of God. The God who's been faithful long before to generations long ago. Remember, remember those things. So there's something about exile, about crisis that strips things away from us. And the only sort of response we have is to go back, to reach back into the past, to reach back into our history, to return to the basics of our faith and to find an anchor there to remember what our faith is founded upon and to remember that it's only the God who rescued us from Egypt who can return us from exile. It's only the God who rescued us from Egypt who can return us from exile. It's only that God, the God who brought us out of that place in the first days, who brought us out of Egypt, who can bring us out of Babylon. He is still our hope. I remember a a time in life, I was a relatively new Christian. I became a a follower of Jesus at the end of high school, then went to a Christian college in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my junior year, I remember going through this sort of series of events where my carefully constructed life had all begun to unravel. Anybody experienced this before? I was working as a youth pastor at a church, kind of a thriving church plant, and thought, I've got my career set forth. (laughs) 
right? I've got another year of school. I'm going to graduate, and I'm just going to, you know, move right into this job. Uh, and I was in uh, an extended relationship with a young lady. We'd been kind of dating on and off most of our time in school. We'd been dating pretty steadily for about a year. And it's like, hey, you're going to graduate. We're going to get married. We're going to stay here in Tulsa. I'm going to be a youth pastor. And everything was sort of, you know, sort of set up. I had it all ordered and constructed really well. And then one day, out of nowhere... Uh, the girlfriend asked if we can have a conversation, and suddenly and abruptly, and with no explanation other than a God card being played, the relationship was just over, just ended. And you're like, what? She's like, it's not God. I'm like, I thought it was. So maybe I don't hear from God. You do. I don't know. What do I do? And that relationship ends. And then I get called into the senior pastor's office at the church, uh, and he lets me know that the church and the youth ministry uh, that I helped start and grow have now grown beyond my skills. Uh, and so it was time for them to do a nationwide search uh, for somebody who was better at this job than I am. Uh, and I'm happy, they're happy to have me stay around as a volunteer once that person's hired uh, until I graduate. Uh, but the job was going to be ending. And then a couple of months later, uh, it was sort of discovered that this lead pastor uh, was uh, engaged in some immoral and unethical behavior. And this once sort of thriving church plant um, was now in deep, deep, deep crisis. And I found myself in the same place. Going, God, where do I go? What do I do? And it was at that point that church was kind of a charismatic church, and uh, my experiences within church had all been around those things. And a lot of the conversations that I had heard in my first few years of uh, being a follower of Jesus that the old things have no life in them. But it was the creed and the Lord's table and the Lord's prayer in the church calendar that I found firm footing. It was going back to the things of old that the God's people have held on to for thousands of years that helped me find sort of firm footing in the midst of those things. It was going back and remembering God's people have walked through worse things than this. And it was even going back and remembering and praying over and over again, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That in light of all of these things, you're still the one who rescued me. You're still the one who found me in some very, very dark places and rescued me and gave me new life. And so you, the God who saved me then, are the only God who can save me now. It's the God of the exodus who can save us from the exile. And the psalmist say is saying like, hey, don't forget, remember, go back and hold on to those things. We find an anchor in the past. It goes on in verse 1 and says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, you are our dwelling place. This is an incredibly significant statement to start book four. This is God's people in exile, no land, no king, no temple. 
See, the temple for the ancient Israelite was the place that God dwells. The temple was God's dwelling place. The temple was the place that God was particularly present with his people. The temple was the place that God's presence lived. It was the center of their universe and the center of Israelite identity. And when the temple gets destroyed, the perception is that God's presence is lost. God's presence is lost. But the psalmist reminds God's people that before God dwelt with his people in the temple, his people have always dwelt in him. That before God dwelt with his people, his people have dwelled in him for generations. Before the foundations of the earth, God has himself been our dwelling place. The temple may have been God's home among us, but ultimately he is our home. His presence is not lost. It actually covers us and surrounds us. That all of creation, if we read Genesis 1 or particularly, is God's temple. It's his dwelling place, and we always dwell there. This is what the psalmist is reminding his people because when we're in crisis, we question whether or not God is with us. And when we find ourselves in, in crisis, this is our burning question. God, where are you? Where is your steadfast faithfulness, your steadfast love of old? We question whether or not God is with us, and the psalmist reminds us that we are actually in him, that we are in him. So even when we think about the Christian faith, we talk so much sometimes about the Christian faith being about Jesus living in us, right? Jesus in our hearts, Jesus in us, the Spirit in us, and all of that stuff is good and true. But when the New Testament talks about the Christian life and faith, it talks far less about Christ in us and a whole lot more about us in Christ. Then not so much about God getting into our life, but us getting caught up in His. Then getting brought up into him, into his story, in his life, and being surrounded and encompassed and brought in and grafted in to the God who made everything. This is the movement and the trajectory of what the Christian faith is about, is us in Christ. That's the foundation of our hope from him. So Psalm 89 ends with this lament. God, where are you? Where is your steadfast love? Psalm 90 is this prayer that God's people pray in crisis, reminding themselves that God is their dwelling place. Psalm 91, then, is God's response to the prayer uttered in crisis. See the movement and the trajectory? Psalm 91 is actually God's response to the prayer uttered in Psalm 90. This is God hearing the prayers of his people and now responding back in and to his people. See, the Psalms, remember, it's a language of faith. It reminds us that that language is always relational. There's always two sides of the conversation. Psalm 89 and 90 give voice to our experience in the world. But Psalm 91 helps us to hear God's voice in the midst of our situation. And it begins actually talking through an intermediary. We hear somebody speaking over the congregation, God will, he will, you will, he will speak 
speaking on that behalf, but then when we get to the end, we hear God speaking directly to his people. I will. This is so much about what happens in life and community, right? So many times we hear God through other people, him speaking, and then other times we hear him speak to us directly. And oftentimes we hear someone speaking and then realize it's God himself speaking through that person into our life, into our situation. This is what's happening in Psalm 91. And it begins this way, with an address to you who live in the shelter of the Most High. Prayer of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Now the response to those of you who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, those who will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalmist wants to hear us to hear this as God's response to those of us who are in the midst of crisis and confusion, in the midst of doubt and despair, those who, when times are hard, choose to continue to abide in him, to continue to turn to him for hope and meaning and purpose, to try to make sense of all that's going on, that those who continue to trust that he is trustworthy, those who have faith in his character, in his constancy, he wants this to be heard as his song over us. Those he hears crying and says, okay, now this is the song I sing over you. This is your song, but the song that I'm singing to you and for you in the midst of the difficult situations that you find yourself in. Hear me sing. Hear me sing to you these words of hope and promise and confidence. This psalm goes on to confidently proclaim that God will protect his people from this pantheon of perils. I mean, you name the kind of thing that someone in ancient Israel could like face, and it's there. It goes from accidents, like stumbling into a hunter's trap and tripping on a stone. For the clumsy in the house, I'm grateful that God's like concerned about these things. It goes from accidents into things like deadly disease, night terrors, and warfare, and violence, and wild animals like lions and serpents and tigers and bears. And it fluctuates sort of between what it is that God will do for his people and what God will enable his people to do. There's these moments where it says that he will deliver you, he will cover you, and other times it says you will not be afraid and you will trample or tread on lions and on snakes. Now some... Many, I think, throughout church history have misunderstood this psalm and other passages like it as a divine promise that nothing bad will ever happen to the faithful or to those who have enough faith. But if we understand this as a song that God sings over his people while they're in exile, that should shatter that perspective for us. And to see that this is not sort of a divine promise of protection from everything bad in the world, but a psalm of confidence that even when bad things are happening, God has not abandoned us. That God is still with us, that God is still the one who can deliver us and rescue us and set us free from this situation. So some people take this to actual like massive extremes. Uh, When we moved to Kentucky in the summer of 2006, 
Uh, I found myself maybe a month or two in uh, from our time there reading the newspaper. For those of you who don't know what a newspaper is, it's a paper with news. I don't know how else to describe it. That's, that's, that's all I've got. So I'm reading the newspaper, and I read this, come across this story about somebody who had to be life-flighted from a church worship service to the hospital because they got bit by a snake. So the, the church had taken this passage and, and passages like in Mark and other places to say, well, God's, you know, we can actually pick up and handle snakes. And if we have enough faith, then the snake won't bite us. And the snake bit the person. Not because that person did not have enough faith. Because snakes bite people. That's fundamentally what they do. <laughs> This is not what the scripture is trying to portray that we should go and do crazy things. When you see a snake, go the other way. Don't pick it up. Don't play with it. It is not a toy. And it's not a sort of opportunity to show how much we trust God. It's an opportunity to exercise the wisdom God has given us to turn and go the other direction, right? But sometimes we take passages like this and we begin to misuse them in ways that miss the larger sense of what God is trying to say to his people. The psalm is meant to encourage, to fill with confidence those who continue to trust in God when life is hard. That's the point of the psalm, to encourage us, to remind us who God is and remind us at what God can do. It's an encouragement to those of us when we find that everything is falling apart, that when we find ourselves living in exile, to remember and to know that we still dwell with God. And that the God of the exodus is the God of the return. And that we can continue to trust in him even when everything around us might cause us to question whether or not God's faithfulness is still true to continue to remember all that he's done and to hold fast to what he's going to do. The Psalms are not a talisman or a charm. They're not some sort of like magic formula that if we speak enough times or enough ways with enough sort of like faith inside of us that bad things won't happen to us. Instead, the Psalms are God's word to us in the midst of crisis. It's God speaking to us when we find ourselves in unimaginable pain. It's God speaking to us when we have no clue who we are anymore. And we're questioning who he is in our life. So if you find yourself in that place this morning, if you find yourself sitting in this seat and saying, yeah, I feel like I've lost land and temple and king, that everything that I've relied on, everything that I believed everything that I hoped, everything that I thought was a guarantee, everything that I've prayed for hasn't come true. You find yourself in that place. This is God's song over you. Psalm 91 is God singing these things when you face all kinds of trial. So hear this as God's word to you in the midst of that situation. To you who love me, I will deliver you. I will protect you who know my name. 
When you call to me, Psalm 89, Psalm 90, I will answer you, Psalm 91. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you. I will honor you with long life. I will satisfy you and I will show you my salvation. Keep trusting in me. I will. I will. I will. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but the time will come. The psalmist reminds us, it fills us with confidence that the time is coming when God will show us his salvation. It reminds the ancient Israelite that the God of the Exodus will show himself to be the God of the return to the land. And as Christians, we hold on to and remember the God who showed himself in raising Jesus from the dead is the same God that will raise us from the dead. The God who was the God of creation will show himself to be the God of the new creation. The God who dwelt with his people, who came in Jesus to actually be God with us. The God who dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit will come again and make his home with us. The God who made everything good will make it good again. Trust me, hang in there with me. I will show you my salvation. Oh God, where is your faithfulness? You have been our dwelling place for all generations. To those of you who dwell in me, I will deliver you. I will cover you. I will protect you. I will make my home with you again. In the same way that I raised Jesus from the dead, I'll raise you. In everything that's been stolen and lost, put asunder by the enemy, I will restore. Psalm 91 is God's prayer, God's song, his response of confidence over you. It's that even as we face trials of all kinds, we remember that God is the God who can work all things together for our good and for his glory. Amen? This is the hope that we cling to when we come to the table. And when we come to the table and we rehearse God's mighty acts in Jesus, we remember the God who raised Jesus from the dead. We come in hope and confidence that he will do the same in our lives, that he is the God of life, of restoration, of salvation, and that he is our future hope. And so we come to this table, clinging on to that, going back into the past, to all that God has done for our hope as we move into the future. Let's pray. Gracious Father, God of the Exodus, God of the return from exile, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with us, we put our hope and our trust and our confidence in you, even when everything around us is falling apart. We know it's you and you alone 
who can raise the dead. It's you and you alone who can restore all things. It's you and you alone who can restore us, restore creation, and fill us with hope. So do so today as you sing your song over us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.